The healthcare space is often under increased attention because so much government spending goes there. And really, healthcare touches all of our lives. I mean, how often does a couple months go by that you're not going to the doctor or taking your child to the doctor or getting a bill in the mail from somebody going to the doctor? So, healthcare is just ever present. Welcome to GovCon Live. I'm your host, John Williams. And this is the fourth episode of XREL Radio, our multi-part series on the False Claims Act, which includes commentary on potential pitfalls for your company, enforcement issues, and emerging trends in this important area of the law. Today, we're talking to Michelle Litikin, counsel in our government contracts group, to discuss how the False Claims Act affects companies in the healthcare industry. Michelle's going to talk about potential risks these firms face and strategies for avoiding an FCA claim. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope to have some fun, too. But we're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. All right, disclaimer over, let's get started. Good morning, Michelle. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi, John. Happy to be here. So how's life treating you in the government contracts group? You know, we're getting close to the end of the fiscal year, so we're expecting some protests, some contract awards. Things should be getting interesting soon. Yeah, this is a really busy time of year. Tell us a little bit about what you do for us in the government contracts group. I'm an attorney who advises government contractors on an array of issues, you know, everything from organizational conflicts of interest to teaming agreements. And I also assist on matters involving the False Claims Act. I've worked with contractors in investigating, defending against, and resolving FCA claims. Oh, you're an attorney. No kidding. I am. um, 10 years out of law school now. Where'd you go to law school? George Washington. Right here in D.C. So are are you a local kid or are you from outside the area? I grew up outside Chicago. And I know you like to spend a lot of time outdoors. You get out west to go on backpacking trips and you've been all over, right? I'll be going to Yosemite in two weeks for a week of backpacking. Fantastic. Well, we're going to unpack The False Claims Act today, this is something that Michelle said she's touched on a fair amount. A lot of the attorneys in our government contracts group work with False Claims Act issues. We have formed a team on audits and investigations, which often deal with False Claims Act issues. In fact, we have a False Claims Act team because it's such a prevalent issue for contractors. And Michelle, you're on our healthcare team, right? And so what we wanted to do today is to kind of meld the healthcare groups work with the False Claims Act because just like any other contractor, a healthcare firm can have to deal with the False Claims Act, right? That's right. And often healthcare companies are under increased scrutiny because there's a lot of government spending that goes into healthcare. So along with that comes with more scrutiny on what the government is spending and whether uh, contractors are acting ethically. Ton of spending, especially right in our backyard here. We have a lot of the healthcare agencies and they have big budget dollars. So you're right. I mean, that creates for False Claims Act purposes, maybe a target on the back of these contractors. So could you tell us a little bit about the False Claims Act from a high level standpoint? So the False Claims Act, also known as the FCA, is a statute that prohibits persons and companies from defrauding the federal government. Many states have False Claims Act, but today we're going to be focusing on the federal False Claims Act. And it's the it's the government's primary tool for combating fraud. 
It imposes liability for knowingly presenting a false claim for payment to the government or a contractor. So it's a claim for payment. That's a key point to emphasize. Right. So in some contexts, contractors are used to a claim being a defined term, like under the Contract Disputes Act. But under the FCA, a claim is broader. It could be an invoice. It could be a request for equitable adjustment. It could be a CDA claim. So, and I know that that's another area that you are a real go-to for us on here at the firm is REAs and claims. So not just for healthcare firms, but for all manner of contractors, you do a lot of claims and REAs. So you're saying that an REA itself could be a false claims act violation if it's not if it's a knowingly false submission to the to the government. Yes, because the FCA defines a claim as a demand for money or property if the money is spent on the government's behalf or if the government provides the money demanded. So it's another great reason that contractors should reach out to you when doing the REA. On top of that, they can include your costs and helping them on the REA, right? So you can help them stay out of trouble and get the REA squared away and include your cost. Is that right? That's right. And, you know, when you're doing an REA, you want to present as strong of a case as you can. An involving counsel can help you do that. And if you're submitting subcontractor claims, that can also help because you're bringing in a third party. So maybe you're not as in such a tense relationship with the subcontractor. Say, hey, my lawyer just needs to know. We need to check this out. Because you as the prime, if you're submitting that on behalf of your subcontractor and there's false information in there, you may end up getting in trouble for that. Well, that's exactly what I was just going to ask you. As soon as you brought up subcontractors, I thought, what's the possibility of False Claims Act liability for the prime in passing through a claim from their subcontractor. So in that context, both parties could be liable because the prime is going to be expected to give some due diligence to it and vet it and verify the information is accurate. And if they fail to do that, that could be seen as reckless disregard for the truth. And the subcontractor, because they are intending to get money indirectly, but from the government, that's considered to be a claim as well. Yeah, I think that's important to emphasize that knowingly, you know, you said knowingly, present this false claim, it doesn't just mean what you think it means. You know, the, I knew it was false. If you had your head in the sand and were recklessly disregarding that it was false, you may not have known definitively that it was false, but if you're just out to lunch, you could potentially still be liable, right? That's right. In the criminal context, you'd probably have to have a stronger showing of intent and knowingness. But in the civil context, it means deliberate ignorance of the truth or falsity. So exactly burying your head in the sand, you know, and not doing what you need to do to figure out whether it's true and accurate could give rise to a false claims act. Yeah, and we see that a, a lot, the distinction between criminal and civil and false claims act cases, because they can go both ways, right? Okay. And so depending on if you have DOJ criminal involved, you're very focused on the intent and which is you know, willful and front of mind as opposed to head in the sand, out to lunch, as I'm calling it. But that would be an issue potentially on the civil side. Right. Well, good. So we've gotten a good base on the False Claims Act in general, but can you share some specifics now about how this becomes relevant for firms in the healthcare industry? 
So as we said, the healthcare space is often under increased attention because so much government spending goes there. And really, healthcare touches all of our lives. I mean, how often does a couple months go by that you're not going to the doctor or taking your child to the doctor or getting a bill in the mail from somebody going to the doctor? So healthcare is just ever-present. But in this context, we often have actions, settlements in this space. So one way that it comes up is invoicing. You need to make sure that when you're submitting an invoice to the government, that it's accurate. If there's any you know, material misrepresentations in there, that can give problems. You know, if you're billing for services not performed, if you're not using the rates that were agreed to, that kind of issue can come up in, this, in the healthcare context. Yeah, I, I could see that. And what about, you know, healthcare firms in particular? I mean, a lot of firms these days are under very stringent privacy-related requirements. I mean, you talk about not a month or a day goes by, it seems like that there isn't a new state law privacy-related past, and we have a lot of cybersecurity requirements that we've talked about on earlier episodes of this podcast. So there are, you know, HIPAA and other privacy-related requirements that certainly healthcare firms are very attuned to or need to be very attuned to. Like, does that create the potential for False Claims Act liability if you're not in compliance with your privacy and HIPAA-related requirements? Definitely. I mean, as you said, many contractors are supporting federal healthcare programs like TRICARE. And when you sign that contract and when you submit invoices under that contract, you're almost always certifying compliance with all of the requirements in that contract. So when you submit your bill and you're signing on saying we're doing everything we're required to do under HIPAA, we're doing everything we're required to do under cyber, and if you're not, that could give rise to liability under a theory that's called implied certification. So you're saying we have to read all that boilerplate? You do. Or somebody does. Maybe your lawyer needs to. You need to make sure. You, yeah, I mean, that that's obviously tongue in cheek. But these requirements are important because they could impose potential False Claims Act liability, not to mention other types of liability and issues if there's a breach. I mean, I know you guys see that in the healthcare group. We have privacy-related issues that potential breaches or actual breaches that come up on a regular basis, right? Yeah. And I mean, there's lots of regulations that apply uniquely to the healthcare industry. Like, for example, when you're a pharmaceutical manufacturer or a compounding pharmacy of any type, you need to be very conscientious about cross-contamination of issues because, you know, I'm sure you're from having young children, you probably know there's kids who are allergic to penicillin, kids who are allergic to peanuts. The cross-contamination is a oh, real risk. There's a lot of cross-contamination in my house on a regular basis, that's for sure. So these drug companies are also certifying that they're meeting all of those applicable requirements and that if they're saying something is 100% X, it is 100% X. So that's another place where, you know, minding your P's and Q's, crossing your T's, yeah. you know, dotting your I's is really important. How does a False Claims Act case start? Like, I get it that I need to generally be mindful of all the requirements in my contract and be complying with them. That's not an earth-shattering point. But there are obviously risks under the False Claims Act that we're talking about. But how does that risk materialize? Like, wh what starts a False Claims Act case? Well, the unique thing about the FCA is that a claim can come from two different sources. One is the government. And one is what's called a key TAM. And so a key TAM is an individual who can bring a case on behalf of the government. And then once it's filed, the government can choose to intervene or not. 
But so oftentimes it's an employee or a former employee. There's been a lot of cases where a compliance officer or someone else has blown the whistle within the company. They then feel like the company is not being responsive to their concerns. And then they go and they file a False Claims Act case. Yeah. I mean, you could see how in the healthcare space, I mean, and one of your employees would be potentially well-situated to know that you're not complying with a privacy-related requirement in your contract or you had a breach or something like that, right? Yeah, there's definitely been cases where people working in the billing department, relatively low-level employees, see something going on that they're not comfortable with. And then if they bring a case, they get a percentage of that recovery. And these cases can be million-dollar settlements. So getting 30% of that is pretty tempting. Yeah. The fact that that that's a great point, that employers in the healthcare space and and in any industry that's working with the federal government needs to be aware of that there's a financial incentive for these disgruntled employees or just, you know, champions of justice that work in your billing department. There's a financial incentive for them to bring these cases. Yeah. But at the same time, we want to be clear that you don't want to slap that employee down. There are whistleblower protections within the False Claims Act, and you do not want to be in a position where you're retaliating against an employee. You want to conduct an investigation and document everything very thoroughly if you do have an employee that comes to you with a concern. That's a great point. So there are whistleblower protections in the False Claims Act. I was visiting with a good client recently, and they were telling me a False Claims Act story that somebody ended up going to jail because of False Claims Act liability then the case was started by his ex-wife, who then got a big portion of this multi-million dollar judgment. So you want to talk about like a triple whammy, but that that can happen. And I guess there's only so much you can do to protect against a disgruntled employee or an ex-spouse from filing a case like this. You can't really stop them from doing it. And to your point, you have to be careful about whistleblower protections and not retaliating. But what you can do is mind your internal store, right? You can make sure that all your, as you said, all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted. Can you share a little bit more about the particular risks that healthcare firms face under the False Claims Act? So one issue that comes up is making material misrepresentations. And this can happen you know, in other spaces too, but there was a notable example earlier this year involving a healthcare contractor. Two contractors reached a $14.8 million settlement related to healthcare software. And this was in connection with one of the state exchanges that we were also familiar with several years ago when on the news, you know, there was lots of stories about them not operating properly. Well, that happened in Maryland. And that happened, the government contended, because this contractor made representations about what its software would be able to do. It was then selected for award, and it turned out it did not live up to any of those expectations. It couldn't make eligibility determinations. It couldn't calculate tax credits. It couldn't address change in life events or integrate with any of the other contractor's software. So the government had no choice, but they terminated for default. That's obviously something that no contractor wants to deal with. But then even worse, after this termination for default, they launched an FCA investigation and they found that the contractor had made material misrepresentations about the status, functionality, and capabilities of their software. So that's really interesting. In that case, then, they performed for a time before they were terminated. So it wasn't just that there had been misrepresentations about 
the functionality of the software in the proposal, but that they also had been paid throughout a certain period of time while they were performing the contract? Yes. I mean, the government would probably argue you made these false statements to induce us to make an award. You then got in there and we paid you for a period of time. And as soon as they turned the software on, it did not function properly. And then the government's probably losing money and having disgruntled taxpayers calling them up saying this is software is not working and we can't get our health care. And they chose this contractor based on the statements they made about what their software would be able to do. So that sounds like a lesson then not only in the claims for payment, like we talked about towards the outset, the invoices, but being careful not to oversell your capabilities in your proposal. I mean, it sounds like that's what got these guys into trouble in this case, a significant amount of $15 million worth of trouble, right? Exactly. I mean, everybody is familiar with a little bit of puffery and, you know, people sometimes there's a gray line there that people will walk in their proposals about exactly what they can do. But if you're going to make promises about specific functionality that you have and the government makes an award based on that, you better be able to perform as you promised. I mean, that can be a bid protest issue too, right? We've seen that come up. So it's just interesting that it can manifest in several different types of exposure. So what else? That's obviously a really important example, but what are some other examples of the ways that the risks materialize, particularly for healthcare firms? Well, another place that misrepresentations happen is in invoicing. So if you are a government contractor and you have different personnel on your contract, we see a lot of healthcare staffing contracts, everything from anesthesiologists to nurses you know, not billing the right people who are actually providing those services and choosing the anesthesiologist because they tend to have the highest rate. That's a misrepresentation and it's arguably material and that could give you a false claims act problem. Inaccurate billing is also another, you know, thing that happens. Inflated invoices, billing for services not provided, not passing on discounts that you've negotiated. These kinds of things have all led to problems for healthcare companies. Those sound like the prototypical False Claims Act problem. You, you know, you incorrectly billed, but it's interesting how that manifests in the healthcare space. And the example you gave of billing for one position when, in fact, you were providing, I guess, a different position. Right. And I think people often don't understand that not passing on a discount is a problem. There was a case where a, a contractor supporting the TRICARE program was hit with a $10 million fine when they failed to pass on savings they had negotiated with providers to the government, and they were required to pass along those savings. And the company also was pushing insurance claims through the system without checking them to avoid, because they were going to have penalty fees if they took too long. So things the contractors do to try to save money can often end up costing them. Yeah, this, is, this has come up a lot in the False Claims Act space, and I know that DOJ, particularly with healthcare has been focused on False Claims Act related to discounts that aren't passed through to the government. I've also seen that come up for IT firms, the companies that are reselling IT equipment made by other firms. That's very common in the government contract space. And these resellers will often receive what are called SPIFs, which is a funny acronym, but it essentially it means a discount from the manufacturer. And depending on the nature of the spiff, like the reason why it's being paid, if it's being paid to encourage the sales to a particular manufacturer's product, 
that can be a problem under the the False Claims Act that it's not that's not disclosed to the government and not passed through. I know there's been the similar cases with GSA schedule contracts because you're usually required to give the GSA most favorable pricing. And if they find out that you're giving other entities better pricing and not disclosing it, depending on what kind of intent they can show, what kind of knowingness, the circumstances behind it, you could be in FCA territory. Yeah. yeah. So that's right. So when you're in the healthcare space or you're in the IT reseller space in particular, just because I know the DOJ has been very focused on this, you have to be very careful about payments or discounts from the manufacturers that are geared towards driving sales of a particular product or prescriptions of a particular product, that can create issues for sure. So a lot of different avenues for liability to arise for healthcare firms. What are some of the things that they can do to you know, if we've, this is kind of like whack-a-mole, it feels like, you know, we're getting ready to go down to the, the Delaware shore here for Labor Day weekend. We're going to take our kids to the boardwalk. And I'm, so I'm envisioning whack-a-mole right now. And it's like all these different potential types of liability that pop up. What can we do to whack them down? Well, you want everyone in your team, on your culture to be indoctrinated basically to whack them down. And one way to do that is to implement a code of ethics and conduct because you can use that kind of code to prevent a problem before it happens. You want everyone on your team to be acting very ethically and mindfully and be knowledgeable about these concerns. So you want to train them so that these kinds of things don't happen. And then if they see it happen, it gets nipped in the bud right away because you have an internal control and reporting system so that any employees can come to you and report those things. That's great advice. Anything else? You want your business ethics compliance program to be more than just words on paper. I think we've all worked somewhere where there's various handbooks and policies that are handed out. But if the people in charge aren't living and breathing them and they're not being, no one's being trained on them, then they are just words on paper. So you want to promote that culture that encourages ethical conduct and compliance. You want to have training for your employees whenever they're bringing them on and then refresher trainings because we all have a lot going on. It's easy to forget about, oh, wait, I am supposed to be checking these bills. And you want to set up a hotline or an inbox for employees to be able to report concerns to. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you want your people to know you have a culture of we're trying to do this right. You know, we're not trying to cut corners. We're not trying to be cute. And if you see an issue, employee, Call the hotline. Tell us about it. Don't go talk to a key TAM plaintiff's counsel. We want to, want you to tell us so we can get it right because our culture is about doing things right. Exactly. You don't want people to think they're going to be rewarded by making money at any cost. You know, you want them to think, no, we are a good business. We view the government as our partner and we don't want to get in trouble for anything. So is there a standard playbook that you use when you get a case like the call from a client on a case like this for like what to do if there's a suspected issue? So the first thing you want to do is put what's called the litigation hold in effect. And you don't want people destroying any documents, destroying any information. And then you want to get a good sense of what happened by figuring out who the key players are interviewing them and then building maybe potentially more people that need to be interviewed off of that. And then you also want to know what the company did to potentially prevent this from happening. Because if you get in a situation where you have to go to the government and you know disclose this, it can help the company if they can show, hey, we had this great ethics program. Hey, we had this policy to 
periodically audit our invoices. And we had this person who was responsible for auditing the invoices. Because if they see that you were using your best efforts and trying, that can be a mitigating factor if there is some kind of penalty coming. Yeah, I guess that goes to the reckless disregard aspect of it. I mean, hopefully nobody listening is ever in a position of like knowing, meaning like front of mind violation. Like we knew we were doing this wasn't right and we did it anyway. When we hear from clients, it's there's been a, maybe a inadvertent mistake and you don't want the inadvertent mistake or the lack of understanding of the requirements to look like reckless disregard. I think that's what you're you're getting exactly. at. Exactly. Or a rogue employee. You know, you can if you can show this is one bad apple and everything else we were doing was above board. So what's the advantage of having yourself and others on our team here do the investigation? Briefly, attorney client privilege. Attorney client <laughs> privilege, that's right. What is it? That means what? That means that all of the communications with these potential witnesses, people involved, are all privileged and the government can't come in and demand them. You can then choose how to present information to the government. We'll often prepare two versions of the investigation report one that can be shared with the government that's more limited and one that's more extensive for the client so they can get a better understanding of what happened and what steps to put in place to prevent it from happening again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can find where all the skeletons are and it can be cloaked under this privilege for the client to decide when and what to share depending on the circumstances. That makes a lot of sense. What other tips do you have or, you know, things in your toolbox when you get a case like this? Well, you also need to be mindful of what kind of disclosures may be required. In most federal contracts, there's something called the mandatory disclosure rule, and the False Claims Act is specifically called out in that. So if you have, not just if you're suspecting it, once that you have a very firm belief that something probably happened, there's an obligation to disclose. And Working with an attorney can help facilitate that process because we have, you know, examples of how we've done it before. Sometimes we have relationships with the people within the government that can help communicate those messages over. Michelle, that's all been really helpful. If there's any key takeaways you want to leave everybody with? Well, I think it's important to know the healthcare industry is subject to, you know, increased scrutiny. In last year, there was 2.8 billion dollars in FCA settlements and 2.5 of that was coming from healthcare. So you can see that healthcare is a big player here. And the FCA is targeting companies or individuals who knowingly submit a false claim to the government or a contractor. And as we said, knowingly is broader than what you may think. So I would say that healthcare companies should just do a self-assessment. What kind of codes of conduct do you have in place? What kind of policies and procedures do you have governing your invoices right now? Are you confident that if I came and looked at your invoices right now, they'd all be accurate? Take a, a good look at yourself, and then you should be ready to move forward as a government contractor in this space. Get your house in order, right? And healthcare firms means more than just firms that are providing healthcare services, right? It, it means firms that are working in the healthcare space. So it could be an IT firm Especially for with all CMS. The or electrical medical records going on. And just like any other healthcare issue, prevention is priceless. You'd rather treat this problem before it becomes a problem than end up, you know, on the gurney in this case. That's a great place to end. Michelle, thank you very much. This was super. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polaro Mazza production and the music credits go to bensound.com. I've been your host, John Williams. Next time on x Radio, 
We'll be talking to Michelle again, this time about how the False Claims Act relates to the small business programs, potential risks these companies face, and strategies for protecting your small business from an FCA claim. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.